Yes, hello. It's Jason. It's the Ultra Culture Podcast. Welcome back. I hope you have had a lovely, lovely New Year's. We have another special podcast episode. This is another resurrection from the archives, and I think a very, very important and timely one, one that will probably always be timely. Some of you have probably read my first book, Generation Hex, which was an anthology of writing about magic from young people. It came out when I was 23 years old in 2005. It has been out of print for a long, long time. The publisher went out of business. I currently hold the rights and should really get it back out into print at some point, but there's always, it seems like there's always something more pressing. However, it's of course still available used. I often see copies going for like hundreds of dollars, which is kind of whack because it was $10 in in the first place. But I'm going to read my final essay from the book, which is called A Mutagenesis and really represented so many things. It represented my central thesis and point I was trying to make with this book. It came at the end of the book. It was the closing essay. It represented the culmination of years of magical work intensively. And so let me just give you some context for this. Generation Hex came out from the now defunct occult and conspiracy publisher Disinformation in 2005. I got the contract in 2001 during the summer after my junior year of college in which I had gone to New York to intern for them as well as for Genesis Purage and also for The Onion. Ah, youth. I was so innocent. I had no idea what was what was ahead, as none of us do. Um, but uh, somehow, amazingly, I, in interning for, for the company, I was able to convince them to give me a book contract. And so I was writing. I had a book contract. Amazingly, this seems incredible to me now. My senior year of college, which I mentioned is incredible because just like with everything in life, we really don't we really have no idea how good we have it at the time. Uh, and this was much harder for me to do later. So the idea behind the book was that it would be a collection of the most cutting edge, the most modern writing on magic in the world. And specifically, this was coming right after the disinformation book of lies. And specifically, my central thesis in this book was that the occult was going to come to define youth culture that it would be the next big youth culture following on from everything that had happened in the 90s and the 80s and so forth. And it turns out I was right. Um, I was completely convinced of this. I don't really remember why I was so convinced of it in retrospect. Uh, In the years after the book came out, I decided that I had been wrong and all was lost and I had just wasted my early 20s pursuing a delusion. But then lo and behold, just like always happens with magic, just after I'd given up on this whole idea in my late 20s and early 30s, it happened. Uh, Just consider witch talk and the fact that literally every young woman on earth now thinks that she's a witch and so forth. And the mass uh, fascination with the occult in the art world, it's everywhere. And it not only is everywhere, but it has consistently been everywhere since the late uh, first, the you know, since prior to 2010. I mean, it really, really, it came true. So either I'm really good at prediction or I'm somehow causally responsible for this. But 
one way or the other. This is actually what happened. However, in retrospect, my idea about this, that there was literally some kind of mutant race that was, that was being born seems very, very silly and juvenile. Um, but what happened was I spent over a year writing this book, just utterly obsessed with getting it right. As you can imagine, as a young person trying to prove myself and writing a book on magic with very little, uh, I've been doing magic for four or five years, but I was still very new to it. Um, I, I really wanted to get it right as much as I possibly could. So I spent a year um, in England, in London with the Chaos Magic uh, world, uh, uh, hanging out with people like Phil Hine and Dave Lee and so forth, and uh, getting myself into situations and on substances that no human being in their right mind should ever be near, uh, let alone a very a very innocent 21-year-old. Um, but that's what I did, and I spent a year literally reading every single thing that had ever been written on, at least that was, you know, obviously available on the subject of magic, which meant all of Crowley, all of Spare, all of the Chaos Magicians, everything, right? All of the Golden Dawn, uh, all of, you know, some of the more popular books in the, uh, from the Human Potential Movement and people like Barbara Marks Hubbard and, and, and all of that stuff, neurolinguistic programming, everything. I shoved all of that in my brain over the course of a year, uh, the entire time, um, doing magic whilst also daily taking psilocybin mushrooms that I was growing myself as you do. P.S. They were legal at the time in England. So there, there you have it. This was all while going to school at the University of London, King's College. Uh, so I spent every day tripping, doing magic, reading about magic and walking three hours a day across the Waterloo Bridge to go to school. Uh, one, among my classmates at that time were Natalie Hind, who was, who was the brilliant daughter of Ray Davies and Chrissy Hind, who now very, very awesomely shout out is a firebrand ecological activist who is just an utter thorn in the side of the British establishment, which is awesome and has been, you know, arrested gluing herself to fracking sites and things like this, which is, which is great. So that aside, somehow at the end of this year, I ended up traveling to all the occult sites in Europe, to Prague. I ended up in India. I ended up undergoing shamanic training in Kathmandu. And long story short, over the course of about a year, just utterly blowing my mind to bits with magic and psychedelics and all of this stuff. And yet somehow it all worked. And this book was the result. And it was just a phenomenal period of my life. So this essay, I consider the buried lead, the payoff, not only of this book, but of that whole process. It was not the idea I went into it trying to prove, but the idea that I got out of it, which I think was much, much, much more important and sound and experienced at that point than I was when I had gone in, when I was had very, very little experience. This was coming out of the Chapel of Extreme Experience. And for some reason, it's never been commented on ever. I mean, when this book came out, it was it was well received by some people. A lot of people hated it. The chaos magic scene hated it. Um, people who had been submitted essays to it and not chosen were really hated it. Uh, it was a huge catty subcultural battle, uh, similar on the same level of 
people fighting in a goth club or something like that. It was it was just ridiculous. The the book itself, I think the content of the book itself, for me at least, was kind of eclipsed to my great, great shame and embarrassment by recriminations and, and fallings out with other collaborators to the contributors to the book and quite unfortunately the publisher of the book as well. And I I was I was twenty three, but I still think of this with great embarrassment and shame every day. Okay, that aside, but this this essay was the payoff and I've never seen anyone talk about it. So I'm just gonna read it on the podcast because the book's out of print. It's really hard to get uh, or expensive to get. And I think that this needs to be brought back to the world. Perhaps it was just writing, waiting for the right time and rereading it now, which I have not read this essay probably in 15 years. Um, it is really kind of ominous to me how prescient it was. I will let you figure out for yourself in which ways it may or may not have been prescient. So this is a mutagenesis. It is the last essay in Generation Hex. If you like it, um, I recommend hunting down a copy of the book if you can, if you see a cheap one on Amazon. Hopefully I will bring one out in the future, but unfortunately I wouldn't hold my breath because it's kind of, the, the amount of work on my plate is is usually way too high to go back to the past. But um, here it is. One of the best contributors to this book, by the way, Mickey Pellerano, who I've been friends with since and uh, is a has is one of the few people from the book who has been solid the entire time and has made a career for himself as an occultist and an astrologer and stayed true to everything that he said in his essay in this book, which um, I'm very privileged to know him. And Mickey Pellerano, of course, has just released a course on magic.me called The Astrology of Wealth. It is now out. It is open. The course is done. And let me tell you, it is amazing. He didn't just do a talking to the camera thing. He did this whole animated visualized universe teaching astrology and Kabbalah with just incredible computer graphics. And he's just unbelievably charming and a great teacher. And it's just, it's, I'm very, very proud to put this course out. He, it teaches all the basics of planetary magic and astrology from the from the perspective of being a magician and specifically for using astrology and planetary magic to manifest wealth and career success because if you're going to start somewhere you might as well start there particularly in the middle of a potential global recession we all need all the magic we can get so it's the astrology of wealth it is on magic.me it is awesome please 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 do yourself a favor check out this course check out there's a trailer at least watch the trailer it is awesome. It's really, really, really good. Okay, so Astrology of Wealth, magic.me. All right, here's the essay. Amuta Genesis. In the third century Gnostic text, the hypostasis of the Archons, contained in the second of 13 codices discovered in Upper Egypt shortly after the detonation of the atomic bombs at Nagasaki and Hiroshima, a rather odd version of the Garden of Eden story is given. The text begins with a depiction of the central theme of Gnosticism, that the world we inhabit has been created by an insane god. Since the world is imperfect, and is for the most part a malevolent and cruel joke, posited the Gnostics, then it must not have been created by the true god, who must, by definition, be perfect. To the Gnostics, like Baudelaire, it was clear that everything in this world exudes crime. 
For such an astute and discerning view of existence, the early Persian and Syrian Egyptian Christian heretics were largely excised from the planet. The blame for creation is laid at the doorstep of Ialdabaoth, also called Samael, aborted fetus of Sophia, who was afterthought and wisdom. Lion-faced, misshapen, his name means child of chaos in Aramaic. It is this god of the blind that has dominion over the world, who in his cosmic arrogance utters, I am God, there is no other but me. The androgynous and beast-faced archons, the authorities who rule the planet under Ialdabaoth, create Adam in the reflected image of the true god, who is but a fond and inscrutable memory, and set him to work naming the flora and fauna of the Garden of Eden. They cause him to sleep and pull Eve from his side. Adam and Eve are given dominion over the garden, with the sole provision that they not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The divine feminine presence from beyond the prison reality of the Archons then incarnates to the first humans as a snake, in this version coming not to tempt them, for what truly perfect god would feel the need to create such a sick test of loyalty, but to liberate them from the illusion created by Ialdabaoth, saying, It is not the case that you will surely die if you eat the fruit of the tree, for out of jealousy he said this to you. Rather, your eyes will open, and you will be like gods, recognizing evil and good. Then, as the hypostasis of the archons, or reality of the rulers, recounts, Adam and Eve help themselves to a naked brunch, and, as in the Old Testament, realize their imperfection, ignorance, and rather advanced state of undress. The archons find them and become enraged. The two mortals blame the snake, conveniently forgetting that it was they who sought liberation and realization in the first place. The authorities curse the snake until the day that the perfect human is to come. Adam and Eve are thrown from the garden, and the human species is damned to constant distraction, to be constantly working to stay alive, so that they can never look up from the material world, never have a second to breathe and return to spirit. That sure was easy, wasn't it? When they sequenced the human genome, I was still in college at the University of California, Santa Cruz, writing for the school paper. UCSC was one of the key proponents of the International Human Genome Mapping Consortium, which had been working for over a decade on the sequencing of the genome, increasingly racing against the prospect of corporate teams. In this case, J. Craig Ventner and the Aplera Corporation runs Solera Genomics, getting there first and patenting the contents of DNA. Such are the economically driven absurdities of modern science. The Santa Cruz team was responsible not only for a large deal of the project, but also for the computer software that made viewing the genome online possible. The day after the genome was initially mapped, on February 12, 2001, I found myself in the computer science building talking to Dr. David Hausler, the team leader, while the jubilant group sipped champagne and watched the live satellite feed from the International Project convening in Washington, D.C., where Jim Kent, the graduate student who had designed the genome browser, was representing the team. It's electric at this point, Hausler told me. The information we have is going to be accelerating at an unbelievable rate. We'll get a much better understanding of human disease by exploring the genome. Most of medicine up to now has been working blind. 
The 13-Year Human Genome Project, as conducted in the United States, United Kingdom, Japan, France, Germany, and China, was fully completed on the 50th year anniversary of James Watson and Francis Crick's Nobel Prize-winning discovery of the double snakes of DNA. The project identified 20 to 25,000 genes, as well as the sequences of the 3 billion chemical base pairs that comprise human DNA. Since the genome was sequenced, we've begun to see the medical benefits of the project's completion, such as tests for determining genetic predisposition to diseases like cystic fibrosis and breast cancer. The holy grail of bioinformatics, the cure for cancer, seems not far away. As of this writing, the Human Cancer Genome Project, which will take an estimated nine years and cost $1.35 billion, is just beginning its planning stages. It was not lost on me at the time, however, that medicine might not be the only application of such information, especially not in the dawn of Bush's America, especially not at the University of California where they built the bomb. It would be almost too easy to compare the cracking of the genome with the cracking of the atom. After all, the Human Genome Project's chief source of funds was the U.S. Department of Energy, originally known as the Manhattan Engineer District, established in 1942 by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to oversee the Manhattan Project, and whose top goal is, quote, to protect our national security by applying advanced science and nuclear technology to the nation's defense. One shouldn't have to think hard to imagine the military uses that the knowledge of the genome might be applied towards corporate slave races, genocide bombs. As the Washington Free Press reported in January 2000, quote, Ominously, the Human Genome Project is currently being conducted under the auspices of the Energy Department, which also oversees America's nuclear weapons arsenal. While the similarity of the DNA of all humans seems to argue against the feasibility of gene weapons, British and other scientists were not so sure. In October of 1997, Dr. Wayne Nathanson, chief of the Science and Ethics Department of the Medical Society of the United Kingdom, warned the annual meeting of the Society that gene therapy might possibly be turned into gene weapons that could potentially be used to target certain gene groups possessed by certain groups of people. Quote, Nathanson warned that such weapons could be delivered to humans not only in the anticipated form, such as gas and aerosol, but also might be introduced into water supplies. Backing off of any suggestion that such weapons might be capable of eliminating the majority of the world's population all at once, he suggested that the weapons might be used not only to induce death, but to cause sterility and deformed births in the targeted groups. The result, just as certain as genocide, but a slower, more insidious, and therefore potentially undetectable attack. Current estimates of the cost of developing a gene weapon were placed at around $50 million, still quite a stretch for isolated bands of neo-Nazis, but well within the capabilities of covert government programs. End quote. The Human Genome Project is the third wonder of the American empire, a massive scientific undertaking preceded and only matched for scope, effort, and Promethean hubris by the Manhattan and Apollo Projects. The repercussions for humanity, it is expected, will be much greater than either of those previous endeavors. The American century has given us the ability to destroy the planet, the ability to leave the planet, and now, the ability to change the human essence itself. Swiss anthropologist Jeremy Narby has argued in his significant and convincing book, The Cosmic Serpent, that the essence of shamanism across the world is the communication with the genetic code. 
He cites the prevalence of snake imagery throughout shamanic cultures, including those from areas in which snakes are unknown. The twin serpents Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca of the Aztecs, the rainbow snake of the Australian Aborigines, the Greek monster Typhon, the primordial serpent Sito of ancient Egypt, the African Araboros, the Hindu serpent Sesha, the Caduceus, the Tao, the Nahushtan of Moses, and the rod of Asclepius that has been the symbol of the medical profession since the days of ancient Greece. To these I would add Ida and Pingala, the double snakes of Kundalini, which go back to Mesopotamia circa 2600 BC, to the Eleusinian mysteries of Greece, and to Gnosticism. It's a tempting jump between the imagery of coiled serpents and the DNA double helix, but Narby indeed provides compelling evidence that, quote, shamans take their consciousness down to the molecular level and gain access to biomolecular information. While Narby takes into consideration shamanic and religious traditions from around the planet, his thesis is based upon fieldwork conducted by Ashaninka Ayahuascaros in the Amazonian Pichas Valley of Peru. Since the Banisteriopsis copyvine that the Ashaninkan shamans use is native to the Amazon, and shamanism is a global phenomenon, there has to be more to communicating with the genome than ayahuasca. Suggestively, its active ingredient, dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, is found in varying amounts in plants throughout the world, as well as within the human pineal gland. The access of and dialogue with DNA has been discussed in the literature of psychedelic shamanism, and Congress with the genetic code is usually a power ascribed to potent psychedelic brews administered under heavily controlled situations. Magic, it should be clear, is a discipline independent of drugs. Yet magic and drugs are indeed strange bedfellows that can occasionally collaborate in making some high weirdness. The skills of the magician can be particularly useful in navigating the other world revealed by psychedelics, just as the heightened awareness of the psychedelic experience can make the processes of ritual magic more tangible and visible. Take a hit of DMT and chomp down a few mushrooms to prolong the trip, in the right context, and you may indeed find yourself in realms where all those funny little symbols and pentagrams from the grimoires turn out to be a damn sight more real than you may have once believed. The skills of the shaman, of the magician, of the mystic, are essential in navigating these realms safely, in plunging into fairyland in order to bring back much-needed information. Yet even dead sober, magic is a direct dialogue with the genetic coils. Take, for instance, the accessing of gods and monsters, archetypes that Carl Jung attributed to the collective unconscious, but would surely have cited as products of DNA if he had only had the language. Which is more likely, that a collective unconscious should be found within some intangible ether, or within the genetic code that we all share? It may be DNA that communicates to the magician in the language of synchronicities, confluences of life events, awakenings, satori, peak experiences, and other occult events. DNA is implicit in the use of blood and sexual fluids in reifying wishes by the combination of the ecstasis of orgasm or bloodshed with intent, along with our strongest magical link to our own beings, the little microscopic bits that contain the code for everything we are. The tarot, its 22 trumps a precise map of the human life cycle, and possibly a crude map of the 23 paired chromosomes of the genome itself, as the I Ching and runes might also be. Austin spares atavistic resurgence, in which the magician taps the genetic programs of evolutionary heritage and takes on pre-human forms. And the inmost magic act, 
that of surrendering oneself to the flow of life itself, gaining enough control to let go into the current of existence. Deconditioning has one overriding goal, and that is to strip off culturalization and mind to replace them with the inner evolutionary directive. In this light, the magician's temple may be as appropriate of a place for investigating DNA as the scientist's laboratory. Aleister Crowley, for instance, died perplexed, at the very end having dropped all pretense, munching chocolates in his room at Netherwood Hastings and occasionally curling his hair into devil horns in a last attempt to stoke the fires of controversy. Having endured until the end, the only thing the great beast wanted to convince anybody of was, all else aside, the existence of non-local intelligence, holding up as an example the otherworldly being Iwas that had dictated the Book of the Law to him. That there was something out there, and that there were higher and lower intelligences than the merely human at work on this planet. His experience has often been held up as an alien contact experience, with similarities to those of modern abductees. Crowley channeled 13 publicly released documents in his lifetime, 15 if one counts the vision and the voice and the Paris working, which are composed of both channeled and non-channeled material. Together, these form his primary legacy to the world, and are generally considered to be documents that were written through Crowley's nervous system, and not by him. The rest of Crowley's writing tends to be flowery autohagiography, occult scholarship, or often only partially successful, attempts by his mundane self at making sense of his channeled documents. If magic is largely a process of deculturalization, of the dispelling of illusion, of stripping away the slime of not-self, one onion layer after the next, and the discovery of true will, by any other name, then magic may be a process of communicating not with spirits and aliens, but with one's own internal faculties, and ultimately, the true heart of experience— the genetic code. Our own genetic programming may indeed be the master builder pulling the strings of history, or strands as it were. As Crowley himself says in Liber Cordis Sincti Serpente, another of those channeled documents that represent either information directly given to Crowley by his genetics or by something of equal or greater perspective, I am the heart and the snake is entwined about the invisible core of the mind. Rise, O oh my snake, it is now is the hour of the hooded and holy, ineffable flower. Rise, O oh my snake, into brilliance of bloom on the corpse of Osiris, afloat in the tomb. There are at least two routes to the literally occult knowledge of the genome. One is the Human Genome Project, which has given us the what and how. The other is magic, meditation, and shamanism, which can give us the why. The last century has been the build-up for this new genetic era, which will provide so many answers and solutions to so many of humanity's dilemmas, and pose so many more. With each technological advance, the potential of utopia comes closer, as does that of extinction. Human beings tend to create hell just cuz. Where will the next Rwanda be? What genetic holocausts will be sparked by the use of the genomic code to produce weapons? We believe attempts to curb scientific research to the superstitious and the born-agains. To halt growth is to hide from the future and slide backwards. However, our intelligence in the application of our discoveries needs a radical upgrade. Nagasaki and Hiroshima were the true parents of the great awakenings of the last decades. 
of our fevered rush to find any kind of spirituality not based on dogma, patriarchal domination, and death fetishism. The mass movements of the 1960s were a step in the right direction, though those who participated soon saw, and in many cases became, their inverse in the 1980s, and in America and Britain, lost ground to the resurgence of the religious right. But the Gnosis hasn't gone away. It just went underground, refined and armed itself, and is now re-emerging in a full magical onslaught. Our DNA is calling us home, to the knowledge of its inner workings and the wisdom and understanding to follow it into space. Why have generation after generation become obsessed with unlocking the doors of the inner planes over the last hundred years? Why occult revival after occult revival? Why the spontaneous discovery and mass popularity of LSD-25, and the upsurge of interest in other entheogens like psilocybin and DMT? And would it be prudent at this juncture to point out that Francis Crick's discovery of DNA was precipitated by Crick seeing its double-snake structure while tripping on acid? Why the widespread clamor for magic? Why are we led across time and space following oblique destinies we may never comprehend? Could it be the 125 billion miles of DNA within each of our bodies, not to mention the DNA of the entire biosphere, the same for all life, awakening us to our innermost essence? Man, Alan Harrington once said, is DNA's way of understanding itself. We stare into DNA with microscopes. We stare into our DNA through the skills of the shaman. It is the combination of the technological accomplishment of the Human Genome Project with the information-gathering skills of magic, meditation, and shamanism that will safely catalyze the next stage of human evolution. Like the entwined double serpents of the caduceus, it will be our aptitude with genetic engineering, combined with our ongoing shamanic dialogue with the genome itself, that will allow us to fulfill our genetic imperative and follow the directives from DNA itself in reworking ourselves into a species capable of solving its own problems. To reach out to our DNA, the snake of liberation, is a truly Gnostic undertaking. To call out to a hidden god who lies not in some far-off cloud, but within the vital life essence of each of us. After all, our planet is little more than a convenience for the continued survival and transmission of DNA. What are these lurkers inside all of us for whom we are merely carrier organisms, pack animals? Always this light is born through the sloshing of time's collapsing shore. And who may touch the light, and were the light itself to direct us, what might we become? Species may go extinct, we may be racked by plagues and wars, but the DNA goes on, pulling the strings and evolving itself through endless forms until it finds a way to return to space. To quote Jeremy Narby, DNA and its duplication mechanisms are the same for all living creatures. The only thing that changes from one species to another is the order of the letters. This constancy goes back to the very origins of life on Earth. According to biologist Robert Pollock, the planet's surface has changed many times over, but DNA and the cellular machinery for its replication have remained constant. End quote. 
the theory of exogenesis, as first proposed by the Greek philosopher Anaxagoras and restated in the 20th century by the British astronomers Sir Fred Hoyle and Nalan Chandra Wickramasinghe, states that life may have in fact originated elsewhere in the universe. The constancy of DNA seems to bear this out. It's easy to imagine a meteor containing some kind of cellular material landing on Earth and life taking hold, propagating itself through endless recombinations until evolving an ecosystem capable of supporting the requisite intelligence, that is, us, needed to engineer travel to further planets. It hides as everything. As the 21st century opens, we are seeing a confluence of, on one hand, terminal fundamentalism, cultural gridlock, and unregulated military science and on the other, the mass acceptance and refinement of the technologies for exploring the internal cosmos. The exploration of outer space will be no less of a gargantuan, mysterious, and important undertaking as that of inner space, and they have the same goal, ensuring the survival, propagation, and positive mutation of the human species. As this inner space age continues, we continually hear the admonitions of the small-minded that we should not play God for we will soon incur, quote, his fiery wrath. But what is magic, if not the realization of the divinity of man, the divine and non-local hidden intelligence that underlies the masks we mistake for self? God is hidden within. Take any instructions for spiritual attainment and replace the words God, Allah, or the holy guardian angel with DNA, and you will quickly see countless methods laid out before you. The central idea here, that the quote proper use of magic is in genetic engineering, which will produce the true mutant species, erupted in my mind as a sudden revelation from outside, while riding with the Dalits in a train crossing the plains of Uttar Pradesh, central India, during a grueling 30-hour trip between Varanasi and Jodhpur, Rajasthan. It came as the solution to the problem I had been working on for the previous year, that is, how magic relates to human evolution, and spontaneously emerged from a deep enough level that it itself seemed to be a communication from my own DNA. Responsibility for the proper use of genetics cannot be expected of the scientific community, largely run by corporate and defense contracts. Despite the fact that we continually develop new technologies for monkeying with existence, our moral capacity for using them never seems to get past the point of arguing over whether to make laws against them or not, and never seems to factor in the question of what the most intelligent use might be. Research scientists, with many notable examples, can often be the last people to ponder the metaphysical and ethical significance of the fruits of their labors, and at any rate, second thoughts always comes second. Quote, People's careers are at stake, Jeremy Narby stated in a 2004 interview with the French journal Prism Escape. Quote, there are many small pyramids of power. The professors hold their positions for life, and when you're the one who decides what the truth is on a subject, you don't open the door to heretics. An anthropologist who takes hallucinogenic drugs with Indians bare feet in the forest can't be taken seriously. That's not the way to study DNA. They have equipment worth millions that bombard DNA molecules with electrons. That's the way they do science. End quote. Could we be seeing the birth of a new profession, the genetic shaman?
We are almost awake from our delusion of powerlessness now. We are made over by electronic media. The information revolution has not so much brought us new information as made us more aware of the limits of communication and the archetypal symbols lying underneath our language systems hold the keys to the destruction of the planet and since 2001 have opened the heart of the human organism and peered inside. We now live in a world in which the idea of, quote, human nature is irrelevant. We've been raised in artificial environments, in artificial media systems, our food pumped full of artificial additives. We're changing, with no reliable map to tell us where we're going. It is possible that the curve of history is leading us towards the awakening of DNA to self-realization. As our personality shells are stripped off, the fiction of our differences revealed to be simply iterations on the same pattern. The revelation of all life as the expression of the secret chiefs that guide all evolution, DNA itself. The realization that there is only one life form on this planet. It should be clear, our best guide in altering our genome will not be some assumed scientific or religious truth, but the genome itself. We just have to learn how to talk to it, and the world's shamanic and magical traditions are just waiting to show us how. I am God. There is no other but me, cries Ialdabaoth in his blind fury. Such is the first pillar of Islam. La hila illallah, Muhammadan Rasulallah. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Or from Exodus 25, For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. In recreating ourselves, will we listen to the voice of the archons, or the voice of life itself? The snake is our ladder out of this hell. Ah, moon. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. That was a mutagenesis from Generation Hex. Pick it up if you can find it used, and definitely go to magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, and check out Mickey Pellerano's new course, The Astrology of Wealth, which is now open. The doors opened on January 5th. The entire course is now there waiting for you to view it and unlock the secrets of the stars. All right, I will see you there.